Good morning, beloved Orangewood. It is great to be with you today. Great to be worshiping our great God. And I don't know about you, but every once in a while as we sing, there's one phrase or there's one lyric that just jumps out. And this morning is when we're singing, come thou fount of every blessing. And it's, it said this, let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Now we don't often speak in English. And so you may wonder what in the world does that actually mean? But if we unpack that a little bit, it's profoundly grace centered and beautiful. It's saying this to us because we are so prone to wander. He's saying, let thy goodness like a feather, like something, a fetter, like something that ties us down to God. Like, let that goodness like a feather tie thy wandering heart to thee. You know, he doesn't say, let thy judgment, let thy fear, let thy shame, let thy goodness. The goodness of a God who is, the goodness of a God who loves, let the goodness of God bind us to our great God. I hope and pray that that's the reality for all of us today. I don't know what you think of God, but I'm telling you, we're going we're gonna to see in his word today what it tells us about God. And he is incredibly gracious incredibly loving and he loves sinners like us. So it's such good news. If you have your Bibles while I tie my shoe, cause I'm going to fall and trip. If I don't, if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter three, and we're in a series, it's actually a season of epiphany, uh, where God is revealing to us who he is and specifically who his son Jesus is. And this is the most important thing that we could ever know. To know God as he is revealed to us. To know and love him and to be known and loved by him. And today, I got to tell you, I'm so excited. Every Sunday, I'm excited. But there is some wonderful, in the story that we're familiar with, some incredible teachings that God will reveal to us by the power of his spirit. Who he is, what, what his purpose is, what his pleasure is, where we find it, where his power is. And these are all things that every single one of us need to know because we've all been made in his image. You know, there's certain events in life that will reveal one's true character or maybe even reveal their true colors, right? Uh, something happens and you kind of see behind the curtain and you kind of have one of those aha moments and you're able to say, ah, I think I truly understand that person now or or maybe I truly understand their agenda. It really is like the curtain is opened and, and that veil is removed or the mask is removed and, and we see someone truly as they are. Maybe it's kind of like that, the Wizard of Oz when the curtain is finally pulled back and you see the, who is behind the show here, so to speak. Well, during Jesus's baptism that we're going to look at today, literally the curtain of heaven is pulled back. It's one of the rare times where, where heaven is ripped open, it says. It rips open and, and we see clearly behind heaven, behind the curtain. Who is this God? How does he feel about us? Who is his son? And how do we relate to him? It reveals to us this true character of God. What is happening here is so important because in Jesus' baptism, uh, it's really the way that God the Father is revealing his son. He's saying that the mission is going to begin. There's been a kind of some silence here for a while, but the mission to seek and to save the lost, sinners like you and me, to, to bring justice to the nation is about to embark. And it starts with his baptism. What's interesting is you look at the life of Jesus. I mean, it starts off with this incredible birth, right? We spent the Advent season looking at the mystery of God putting on flesh and being born in a manger. 
And then we, we see that he's baptized, uh, I'm sorry, he's circumcised as, as scripture says on the eighth day. And we also have this one story about him as a 12 year old, probably a time or he's moving to manhood where he gets lost, uh, and he's in the temple. And remember the family leaves without him. But since that time until this moment, there's silence. I mean, we just know that Jesus is up in Nazareth, uh, uh, with Joseph, if he's still alive, he, Joseph kind of fades from the story. You don't know when he passed away. And, and Mary, he's this carpenter's son. But now the time has come. And the time has come for, for the revealing of who Jesus really is. The time has come for him to step out of the shadows onto the center stage. And it all takes place around this baptism. And the baptism of Jesus, again, it's, it's so beautiful, God's story, because as it unfolds, we're going to see, even this morning, that it's the perfect fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah said would happen. 700 years before this baptism, Isaiah said this would take place. Why? So because God's servant son is going to bring justice. He's going to bring love. He's going to bring God's character. He's going to tell us how he's going to execute his ministry. Great thing about Jesus is he's king of kings and Lord of lords. He's God almighty. But you got to know this Jesus. He doesn't, he's so humble and meek. He doesn't break a bruised reed. Those who are just barely hanging on, who's, uh, their flicker, their candles, like going to go out. He doesn't snuff out. That's this Jesus. And it also beautifully represents Jesus's willingness to identify with sinful people. That the Holy One is, it wants to be washed in the same waters with sinners like you and me, foreshadowing what he will be ultimately willing to do and identify with us. So we're going to read the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 3, we're going to see the baptism of Jesus and uh, is recorded in God, uh, Matthew's Gospel 3, 13 through 17. Then we're going to go to Isaiah 42. And we're going to see that prophecy that is fulfilled here in Matthew 3. Uh, but let's be mindful if we're in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Uh, this is all God's story. This is one story. It's not here to, trans, uh, to uh, entertain us, but it's here to transform us, to reveal uh, the true character of God. We know that this is important because this is one of the things that is in all four gospel accounts of Jesus' baptism. So God really wants us to understand what this means for Jesus and what this means for us. So let's hear the word of God. Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Let's hit pause here and say, by the way, uh, this is the John the Baptist. Uh, this is John realizing his, his baptism is not a Christian baptism that we celebrate here in the triune name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is a baptism for repentance of sins. This was preparing the way. So John was rightfully saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Here comes this sinless, spotless Lamb of God what are you doing? You are the greater. I can't even untie your sandals. I'm not worthy. Why do I baptize you? Shouldn't you be baptizing me? And the reality is it's to fulfill all scripture and righteousness. Now let's, let's, let's do this. It's pretty amazing. Uh, then he consented. 
And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the waters and behold, the heavens were open to him. Uh, the gospel of Mark will say they were torn open and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, the father could no longer be silent. And he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Let's go to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, one through nine. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives birth to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. A new thing I now declare before they spring forth. I tell them, I tell you of them, the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. And Father God, in this incredible story, heaven is opened and your pleasure is declared and your spirit descends like a dove, a sign of peace onto your son. Father, as we gather in your name to understand this story, we ask that the heavens again would be open and that the the spirit would descend and, and fill this room with your presence. That God, that you would be able to do that which only you could do. I am the lesser, I am unworthy. But God, would you be pleased to speak through a broken sinner like me? Father, would you give us ears to hear your voice? Would you give us minds that understand your word because they're illuminated by your spirit? Would you give us hearts that would embrace your love and your truth and your reality? And God, would you give us uh, just power and joy and conviction to walk in a manner worthy of your name? That God, the things that I say that are wrong or merely my opinion, may those things fall away and be forgotten. But God, the things that are said that are true, and there's a lot of truth here this morning, the things that are said that contain the gospel, and the gospel is clearly here this morning. Would you use those things to make us more like your son? For some of us, it might be for the very first time. For some, it may be yet again, over and over again. But God, would you use these things to to transform us and to bring Jesus great glory? And we pray this in his matchless name. Amen.
In your bulletin, you're going to find an a, uh, outline for you if you want to follow along with me. I, not the typical three points, a uh, little extra bonus for you. There'll be a, a couple more. And again, in this passage, what God is revealing to us is so significant. I guarantee you, if you've been around church, if you've been around the Bible and Christianity, you have heard the baptism story of Jesus. But wow, what God reveals to you and to me about who he is and what he requires of us in this passage is astounding. The first thing we're going to see is this. It's revealing the persons, plural, of God. The Bible primarily teaches, uh, teaches us who God is and what he requires of us. That's, that's how the, what the Bible primarily does. But the Bible tells us who God is and what he requires of us in a story. God doesn't give us a textbook. Uh, God doesn't give us a manual that you could turn to chapter 2, uh, paragraph 4, for a definition of who God is. Or you could look at uh, chapter 15 for who man is. God will reveal himself to us cl- clearly, plainly, sometimes in a mysterious way. But he does it in a way of a f- story that unfolds. A, rev- a revelation that we don't get it all in the beginning. There's certainly a mystery about God. And we will never fully get our arms around God. Even the glorious day where we stand in his presence and we see him as he is, scripture says, and that we will be like Jesus and we will know as fully as we can, we are finite creatures. He's infinite. Uh, He is God. We are not. And there will always be some mystery, although that mystery is is being dispelled uh, over time. But from the very first chapter of scripture, from the very first part of the story in Genesis, we start to see about this true and living God, the one who is this one God. There's a mystery to it. And it's a mystery that starts to be revealed when he makes you and me. He makes men and women in his own image. He stops creating and he stops to say, let us. It's almost like a council is taking place. A meeting is taking place and and something is happening. Let us make man and woman in our own image. And you start thinking, whoa, there seems to be a plurality to this. There seems to be just more than let me make man in my own image. Now, let me even hit pause and say, some people will say, well, you know, in the ancient Near East, when they talked about their gods, they wanted to magnify them. So they often talked about them in the plural, you know, the royal we, so to speak, right? And so they're saying, well, maybe they're just saying, well, God is mighty. And so Elohim is being described here in the the plural to say he's mighty God. And I will also say that Genesis 1 does not tell us the whole story of who God is. You'll have to read through scripture to understand who this God is. And as you continue to read, especially as you get into the, the story of the new covenant, the new Testament, God reveals himself to us as a triune God, this mysterious three in one. Our tradition holds on to a theological, a great theological work called the Westminster Confession of Faith that looks at the Bible and the story and tries to answer the questions, things like, what is God? Well, God is a spirit, infinite and eternal and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. You see, I had to memorize those things to get ordained and they helped me and I had to sing them. That's the only way I did it. 
But they would say, well, so here is this God or what is this God? And then it asks the question, how many persons are there in the Godhead? And, the, and really, as scripture reveals, there's three persons in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, one substance. They're equal in power. They're equal in glory. But they have different roles. And maybe the best way I could describe this in a brief way in this sermon is this. You have, according to Scripture, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, remember, they're one, but they're three separate persons. Are you, a little mystery here? That's, that's a mystery. But they're one God, three persons, and they have different roles. As in a marriage where you have a husband and wife and the two are brought together to be one flesh, but they have different roles. Probably the simplest way I can say is this. God the Father always initiates. God the Father always initiates. For God so loved the world, he gave. God the Father, although they're equal, uh, there's a Father who initiates. God the Son executes. God's the Son. Before time began, God decided to love sinners like us. Amazing. And the plan was to rescue us. And so God the Son executes the plan that was initiated by the Father. And he executes it by seeking to save the lost. He comes. And God, the Holy Spirit, applies. He applies the love of the Father and the, the work of the Son. He kind of he empowers us to, to get the story. Well, this is clearly a mystery. And it's a mystery for us to understand. And the baptism of Jesus is one of the clearest texts of Scripture that point to this triune nature of God. And I got to tell you, this is not something that we wouldn't say is like outside of critical information of knowing about God. There's things about Christianity you would say, these are core beliefs. There are things about our denomination will say, well, these are distinctive beliefs. And there's things about Christianity that are are really like the end times that will say, well, those are debatable beliefs. But this isn't a debatable belief. This is not debatable that, hey, is God a triune God or not? And, and maybe we shrug our shoulders and say, well, it doesn't really matter. I'm telling you, this is one of those points where you're either orthodox, follower of Jesus, or you're not. You're the child of the king, or you're not. This is, this is critical for us to understand. And again, as we see this, this, this text before us, you have the Trinity, you have this voice from heaven saying, that is my boy. That's my beloved son. Heaven opens up. He can no longer be silent. He breaks the silence. He declares his love. You have Jesus being baptized in the waters of the Jordan by John the Baptist. And you have the Holy Spirit manifesting itself like a dove and selling upon him. Here you see the picture of our triune God. But I want to take you back to Isaiah. Because Isaiah 42 tells us much of the character of God that we will get to and the beauty of that character. But it says something also thunderous about God and his character when he says that God will not share his glory with another. In this wonderful Isaiah passage where God is saying, listen, I'm going to send my spirit on that servant son of mine. And he is going to, he's going to deal with, bring justice by dealing in a really meek and humble way. God says, but but by the way, I'm holy God. And there's going to be no rivals. 
I, I will not, I cannot, God cannot himself commit adultery. God cannot let anything else be worshiped or praised beyond him. And he's saying, I, I just cannot. God will cease being God if he ceases, he gives his glory to someone else, his fame, his praise, his worship. He's, I, I, will, I will not accept worship of idols. I, basically, he's saying this, you can't invent the way you want to worship me. You can't, you can't picture me the way you want to picture me and the, and the God of your creation and the God of your imagination and the fuzzy, warm, loving God that you want to come out of your own being. You, that, that's an idol. You don't worship that. You worship the God who is, the God who is revealed to us in Scripture, and you worship him alone. You know, we're made in God's image and many of the qualities of God are in us, but because of sin and brokenness, we, we try to be God. That was our problem from the beginning. When we were tempted, the serpent said, well, God doesn't want you to sin because he doesn't want you to be like him. Oh yeah, be like God. And ever since is our sin and our striving, we've wanted to make God in our own image. We wanted a God of our own choosing. We wanted a God of our own making. That's what sinful people always will do. But there's a God who is and a God who's revealed himself to us. And we must worship him in spirit and truth. Jesus in the gospel of John, John 4, 24. He has this incredible exchange with this woman at a well, a Samaritan woman. And they're kind of wondering where, where should you worship God? You Jews think it's over there in Jerusalem. But, you know, we, we uh, Samarians, we, we think it's on this mountain. Which mountain do you worship God? And, and he's going to say, listen, the time is now here that it's not that location What's important is that you got to worship God in spirit and truth. Let me say that again. The only thing that we can worship God is we don't worship God at our own invention. We don't invent ways we worship God. We worship God in spirit and in truth, the way he's been revealed to us. And there's just no other way to approach God. That's why Jesus would say something profoundly radical that we can't get around and we can't soften. Jesus will say things to us and to his disciples, things like, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. There's no other way to the Father. Now, we will be accused, and I could almost say rightfully so, as Christians, that you're narrow-minded. I mean, you know, what about those folks? What about these folks? What about even in some folks who would say they're part of a Christian tradition, who do not believe in a triune God. Some ring your doorbells. Some are part of a watchtower ministry. I mean, Jehovah Witnesses, uh, uh, the uh, um, Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. They don't see the triune God the way the Bible reveals the triune God. And we don't have fellowship with them like we do the Baptists or the Episcopals who do. There's a big distinction in difference. And this is, this is a big point. Again, the whole sermon could be about that, but God has more for us. But the bottom line is what God is revealing to us in, the, in this baptism is the persons of God. And it's, it's thunderous. But he's also doing this. He's revealing to us the purpose of God. He reveals to us the purpose of God. And in, in Isaiah 42, 1, he says, this servant is going to be anointed and God is going to bring justice to the nations. Basically saying the story is broken. The story's messed up. The world looks like it's gone to hell in a handbasket, but God is going to do something with it. He is going to bring justice. He's going to make it right. He's going to make all things new. Uh, He's going to bring life and life abundantly. He will bring justice. But then he shows us the the instrument of God's justice. And, And I'm telling you, it should startle us. 
It should be profound mystery. God says, I have a servant. He's going to be the instrument of my, my justice. By the way, he's my son. And he is going to administer justice with such strength that he's not going to bru- break a bruised reed. He's not going to sniff out a faintly burning wick. This, this, the one who's going to come as a servant is going to be meek. He's going to be humble. He's going to be one who walks to John and says, John, baptize me too. And John's going to say, no, 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 I, I, I'm not worthy. He's like, no, 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 I'm, I got to do this. I got to fulfill all righteousness. I, I got to identify with my people. These are my peeps. This is a sign for their sin. And I'm just here for that. I'm meek and I'm lowly and I, I'm not boisterous and I'm, I'm not rowdy. The only people you'll probably see me fuss at are the religious folks who got me all wrong. But for the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the broken and the empty, I'm here for them. I'm their friend. I, 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 I don't break bruised reeds. I don't look at those who are barely hanging on and put them out. That's not me. And Isaiah said, that's the one who's coming. And probably one of the most profound things is, is he identifies with us. And he identifies with our sin. He says, hey, I, I want to be baptized in that baptism. And I, I want to I be in the filthy waters representing their sins washing away because it's going to point to a reality of a cross. It's going to point to the reality that I identify with my people. And Isaiah says something, again, we could read over quickly, but it's pretty amazing. He says, this servant, he will be, it says this, a covenant for the people. And it's basically saying this, he will be a sworn agreement between God and man. He'll be a covenant for the people. He'll be a way that God deals with us. That God has got a new thing he's doing. He's got this new agreement. It's going to be through this servant, this son. And this, this servant, son, he's going to open the eyes of the blind. Read John 9. Never before has scripture had someone blind have their eyes open and prophecy is being fulfilled. He's, he's going to be a light to the nations. I mean, read scripture and be amazed that, that Cornelius, a, a, a Roman centurion, one who is, who there afflicting God's people is going to come to Christ and the light of Christ is going to come even into his eyes, eyes and household. He's going to set prisoners free. And for many of us, we know that that's us. Those who sat in darkness, those, those who had no hope, he's come. He's come and through his life, death and resurrection, we're free and we're loved and we're his. You see, it reveals the purpose of God. And here he is being anointed by the love of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit to go and to do his mission and to fulfill that purpose. But profoundly, it reveals to us the pleasure of God. The pleasure. You, you, you must know this. This is not, again, one of those things I hope you know. This is something you must know. The pleasure of God the Father is found in God the Son. The pleasure of God the Father is found in God the Son. Every blessing that God gives to us, not some, not most, but every blessing that God gives to us is traced through God's love and his mercy channeled through God's son, Jesus. The only way we have life, life abundantly, blessings, blessings abundantly is through the beloved. I want to read to you Ephesians chapter one. 
verses three through seven. Ephesians one is one of the high water marks of theology and what God has done. But I want you to hear the word of the Lord. Ephesians one, three says this, blessed be the God and the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now listen to this. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. So we hear in this passage, that is my son in whom I am well pleased. That is the beloved. And then we hear Paul say that he has blessed us with all blessings in the beloved. God's pleasure is found in God's son. And this is, my brothers and sisters, ridiculously good news called the gospel. We find, experience, and know the pleasure of God through Jesus alone, through Jesus's life, through his death, and through his resurrection. We don't find it on our own noble pursuits of righteousness. We don't find them by being religious. We don't find the pleasure of God by giving of ourselves to God and others first and foremost. We don't find God's pleasure of trying to be morally good people. And when we try, we fail. And when we fail, we become miserable. We feel God is angry. We feel that we are worthless. But that's not the gospel. You see, the gospel is the good news of what God has done for you and me. It's the good news of what he does, what he did and what he is doing through Jesus alone. That's why Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that that it would please the Father that, that God would take his son, the beloved, the one who knew no sin. He would put him on a Roman cross to become our sin so that in Christ Jesus, we could become the righteousness of God in Christ. Interestingly, heaven was silent on the cross. On the baptism, heaven was not silent. On the cross, Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the father stays silent. Oh, he was still the beloved, but the beloved became our sin. The father couldn't even watch. And he became our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God and we could become the beloved in Christ Jesus. I think the greatest sport on earth is hockey. And maybe because I grew up so close to Canada, I don't know, but I'm telling you, if you like speed, you like athleticism, you like power, I mean, it's hockey. And I know you're Floridians and most people don't even know a thing about it. You're missing out on something really good. And we have a really good team not too far away. It's the Tampa Bay Lightning. And it's way better than going to a Magic game. I'm sorry if you know or work for the Magic. I mean, it's like night and day. Go to a hockey game. Get good seats so you can see the, the accent and the speed. And you might see a fight. I'm sorry. But it's, 
And I'm not even talking about on the ice. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's incredible. But what I love about ho- hockey fans is they're all in. They identify with their team. And the number of people, they we wear jerseys. And if you're a hockey fan, you don't wear a jersey. You wear a sweater. You wear your team's sweater. And you wear your team's identity. I mean, I'm telling you, I don't go to a game without wearing my Victor Hedman jersey. He's, he's a very tall, left-handed defenseman like I was. And, and I wear number 77, Victor Hedman. Um, and, and my kids, I got them jerseys. We go into the game. We're all wearing our favorite player's jersey going to the game. And man, do I feel like a part of the team. We well, see, Christianity is the, the joy of wearing God's favorite player's jersey, his son. That he did something amazing on the cross where he took our filth and he put it on Christ. And he took Christ's righteousness and he put it on us. And we get to, to show up to this game of life and we get to wear. We get to experience life. In the beloved. We realize this. It's a reality that God's pleasure for us is secure. It's a reality that it's unchanging because it's completely in God's grace. It's not how you're doing today and how you failed yesterday. It's not if you're going to mess up tomorrow or not. You see, the pleasure is not found in you. It's not found in me. It's found in him. And Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when the father says, that's my beloved, he doesn't change his mind. And if you live your life striving to find the pleasure of God on your own, you're a fool. When God's grace has given you his son. You see, that's the lunacy of the gospel. It's the lunacy of Christianity. That one would come who needs to baptize others would be identified with sinners and be baptized with us so that we could find the Father's pleasure. I got to preach this next service too. <laughs> Lastly, it reveals the power of God. In the book of Acts, I mentioned Cornelius before. In the book of Acts, you have Cornelius, this uh, Roman centurion. He was a God-fearing man that Peter was told to go and preach the gospel there. And that was against the rules. I mean, Jews don't go into Gentiles' house, especially Roman centurions. But in God's calling and prompting, he went and he preached good news. As he preached, he talked about beginning from Galilee, the baptism of John. John proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. That this Holy Spirit comes upon Christians and it's the power of God. And in the beginning of the book of Acts, right before he ascended into heaven and, and God makes a promise, God the Son makes a promise to us. He says in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses. And that Greek word witness is martyrs. You'll give your life for Christ and You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. 
See, we got to realize that as this Holy Spirit comes, it's not only signifying that this is the one that I'm beloved, but this is the one I'm empowering. It's the sign of the Father's acceptance in Christ, and it's a sign of the Father's power for Christ. And what I want you to know is this, is we don't become Christians without the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can apply the love of the Father and the work of the Son to our lives. That's why the Gospel of John, John 3, will say something mysterious. You must be born again. Not just of water, but be born of the Spirit. Because the Spirit of God comes on the, because of the grace of God and the work of His Son for those that He chose before the foundation of the earth. And He comes and the Spirit of God rests upon us in a way it gives us a new heart. It gives us a new nature. It, it lets blind eyes see. It lets those who are in prison and darkness have light and realize that they could be made new. There's, there's some theological misunderstanding that you could be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You could be a Christian and not be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are certain gifts of the Holy Spirit that some of us have and some don't. But there's never been a Christian who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. It's just impossible. Because God's work is complete. It's a triune God. And the triune God is needed to rescue sinners like you and me. It's the initiation of the Father. It's the work of the execution of the Son and the application of the Holy Spirit. You just can't be a... Christian without him. And if you are a Christian, you have, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The only way for us to live our lives to the fullest is and to be pleasing to God is to know the following. You must know the persons of God. You know, must know the purpose of God. You must know the pleasures of God and the power of God. How is it with you? Who is your God? Is it a God of your own choosing or is it the God of the Bible? The true and living God. What is your purpose? Is your purpose now in Christ Jesus to do that, be a part of that mission that the Holy Spirit anointed Jesus to do, to go and seek and to save the lost and bring glory to God? And where are you looking for God's pleasure? You're good people, but I think that most times a lot of good and well-intentioned people try to find the pleasure of God completely apart from the Son of God. And I've realized in my own life, someone who's walked with Jesus most of his life, I still have the propensity to wonder, to let thy goodness like a feather, let thy goodness and grace like a feather bind my wandering heart to thee. Because that's the only source I have for finding the pleasure of the Father. What's the power that's fueling your life? Is it the grit, the determination, the goals you've set? What, what's, what's the power that gets you up and going? Is it something you're trying to strive up internally? Or is the power of God, the Holy Spirit within your life that you want to unleash as you die to yourself and live to him? There's good news. What God requires, God provides. And everything that God requires of us, he's provided for us in his son. Let us pray. Father God, what an incredible passage that reveals so much of who you are, your, your nature, your character, your persons, your purpose, your pleasure, your power. And this is all good news because these all <laughs> originate and flow from the grace of God. And God, may the reality of you revealing your son 2,000 years ago on the banks of the Jordan be the reality of each one of us here. May we know that Jesus is God's son, the beloved. And we wear his jersey.
Amen.